much of what the world stands on today is led by the innovation that's made possible by Intel. We have 15,000 software engineers across the company who are working every day to ensure that our partners and our customers get the full value of our hardware through all the layers of the software stack. Over the last two years, we've seen explosions in the ways in which data is created and consumed, driven by the pandemic, but also driven by what we, we at Intel call the superpowers. Being able to consume and analyze this data in meaningful ways becomes really, really challenging, which demands new types of accelerators, new types of ways of processing. That innovation needs to be built on open foundations. It's only if we're working together to build off of one another and build on the brilliance of the engineers that have come before us that we can meet the challenges of tomorrow. This is Siona TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Melissa Evers, who is Vice President uh, in the Software and Advanced Technology Group and General Manager of the Strategy to Execution uh, team at Intel. A very warm welcome, Melissa. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Melissa, you live in Portland, Oregon, in the beautiful Portland, uh, Oregon. You have a bachelor degree in engineering, an MBA from the University of uh, Texas, the uh, McCombs Business, uh, School of Business. And you worked across uh, system software development and open source communities from device to edge to cloud. And you also worked at Dell, at ExxonMobil before joining Intel in 2004. So, Melissa, tell us a little bit more about yourself. What's your background and how did you arrive in this position at, uh, at Intel? I have a pretty diverse background. I've had probably three chapters in my career. My first was in engineering and as a field engineer at ExxonMobil. My second career was in strategy and finance. And that's what led me to Intel, actually. Started with Intel in 2004. But I quickly found myself working in finance in the context of the software group at Intel. And I fell in love with the role that software plays in terms of our customers and our experiences. Our mm -hmm. chips are rendered through software. What you experience in terms of the value we create, the innovation we bring is made real through software. And so I fell in love with that space and I've been there ever since. Okay, and tell us a little bit more. What, what, what is it really the software and advanced technology? If we say Intel and, and software, what do we need to think about? Many people think that software at Intel means firmware. And it does. We do a ton of firmware drivers, the lower levels of the software stack, but that diminishes the actual value we create. We have 15,000 software engineers across the company who are working every day to ensure that our partners and our customers get the full value of our hardware through all the layers of the software stack. So we do a tremendous amount in partnership with operating system vendors like Red Hat and Microsoft and others, as well as all the way up through virtualization layers working tremendously in open source in the context of orchestration, all the way up to the microservice level to ensure that our partners and customers can realize the value that we create in hardware from endpoint at the client, at the industri industrial area, IoT, et cetera, all the way through network, edge, all the way to cloud and data center. Melissa. How would you describe Intel in a couple of sentences? What is it that makes Intel special today? Well, Intel 
it puts silicon in silicon valley we are mm -hmm. the heart of compute and much of what the world stands on today is led by the innovation that's made possible by intel you know and it did, it's not just manufacturing it's not just process technology we have innovated across the years in a number of different regards whether it be open standards, USB, et cetera, Wi-Fi, key, key things that people take for granted today. Intel has played an instrumental part in building the open ecosystem foundation on which today technology flourishes, whether that be software-defined networking transformations, et cetera. This is all built on our values around open community, collaboration, competition to create the better future. Okay, Melissa, in this conversation, I want to talk about the data economy. Uh, so mm -hmm. how do you look at this? I mean, companies have huge amounts of data that they've been uh, gathering over many, many years. So what is your view on this? How can companies be successful in leveraging uh, the, the value out of the, all the data that they have? Well, in my perspective, compute is at the heart of the data economy. The compute mm -hmm. is the generator of the data. When you look at the explosion of data that has occurred over the last couple of years, you know, to, today I think we're standing at 80 zettabytes. It's forecasted to get to 180 zettabytes by 2025 or something like that. You know, compute, the ways in which we generate this data, the role that Intel and other silicon providers play is at the heart of this data creation. And this data is being created in really different types of ways, whether it be sparse or dense or structured, unstructured, being able to consume and analyze this data in meaningful ways becomes really, really challenging in the context of both the explosion, the amount of it, as well as the different ways in which the data is being created, which demands new types of accelerators, new types of ways of processing, such that we can apply advanced analytics, AI, to all of this data and make meaning. In order for data to create an economy, mm -hmm. you need to be able to turn this data into meaning. Over the last two years, we've seen explosions in the ways in which data is created and consumed, driven by the pandemic, but also mm -hmm. driven by what we, we at Intel call the superpowers. These mm -hmm. extend from ubiquitous computing, a pro, you know, everything being powered by some form of compute, some form of ASIC, et cetera, all the way from edge to cloud infrastructure, the role that pervasive connectivity plays in terms of 5G and private LTE, et cetera. And then finally layering on top of that, the critical need for intelligence and AI to be applied so that we can generate value and meaning out of all the data that is created. Okay, so Melissa, I can imagine that you also work with a lot of technology um, leaders at the, at the demand side, at, at, at the big corporates. So, so how do you see the role of digital leaders, of CIOs in helping their businesses to become really data-centric businesses? So I think there's a couple of things with regard to the role of the CIO and the role of data in that data economy. First mm -hmm. of all, we need to recognize that harnessing the data you have is critical. And there's so many ways in which data transformation is happening today and can render value to corporations, whether that be through refining business intelligence, 
you know, streamlining data services, advanced automation, you know, the revolution that we see happening in manufacturing, et cetera, using all this data to increase quality, delivering superior value to your customers, mining data from your customers to enhance their experience, their buying power, their purchase behaviors, the tailoring of solutions, et cetera all the way to using data for business model innovation. You know, mm -hmm. there's so much happening with regard to the vast amounts of data that people are having at their disposal, but that data creation and the, that value creation is only able to be rendered if that data is connected. Yep. And so one of the critical challenges I think many companies are facing is around the role of dark data. You know, some of us have had, you know, experiences, we've been in this space for a little while, I have been in this space for a little while. You know, we have legacy applications, we have legacy environments, legacy databases, legacy data structures, and that data is not connected, but either because it's geographically dispersed, or it could be because it's in legacy architectures that are difficult to import and ingest. But figuring out how not only do we harness the data we have, but looking for those zones of, of dark data where we are not leveraging what we could be because it is in legacy systems or it is isolated to parts of the manufacturing floor that are not yet connected, et cetera. And this is where I think Intel and our partners can render significant value for corporations um, and for CIOs and CTOs is because we have capabilities through workload consolidation, through a number of different initiatives across edge and across the data center to enable companies to ingest and integrate and bring new workloads into existing infrastructure or build up infrastructure to connect data and bring this the data sources together, what we consider called data flow, dflow, um, bring that together in a way that creates new meaning. Um, and it's in that integration that I think that there's exponential value to be delivered that we're just on the cusp of. Okay, and do you see any, could you maybe give some examples in, in the companies that you work uh, with of, of where they have innovative business models, new ways of working with data, and so that they really can get more value out of it. Are, are there some learnings that you see and in, in, in your customers and partners that, that, that is re, really um, uh, cutting edge nowadays? So I think there's two elements of the data economy and what is cutting edge. There's the business model side, but then there's also the disruption that's happening through a lot of different forces in the ecosystem today. So we've seen significant iteration in business models, whether it be you know, software as a service or whether it be uh, folks who are looking at you know, different types of freemium models, leveraging open source components and then doing maintenance and upsell and all this other kind of stuff tailoring data data structures to deliver new on-demand services, you know, the Netflix, et cetera, of the world. You know, there's folks who are looking at ecosystem wrappers and creating new markets around data integrity and supply chain or, 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 right? The ways in which data provides a foundation for business model innovation is, is tremendous. And I don't think we've seen the end of the ways in which people take data and create new value in the ecosystem. But what I also think is really interesting is the ways in which there are emerging trends that have the potential to be disruptive mm -hmm. and introduce new ways of thinking about business model and the power of data. I think specifically about Web3 or blockchain or security challenges or the role of AI and ethics 
carbon neutrality, the challenges around sustainability and how we are tender um, champions for this planet. I think mm -hmm. all of those things provide disruptive forces that may continue to enable new business model creation and new levels of value creation on behalf of the, the world at large and on behalf of corporations. Yeah. Melissa, I know that open source is very close to your heart. So, so how, what, what is your view on this and how can, is, is, does open source play a role in, in, in doing more with data as well? Absolutely. So one of the things that our CEO spoke about um, in, he's got a LinkedIn post, you can look it up around, uh, we call, internally we call it Pat's Pledge, but um, it's around the role that the open ecosystem plays mm -hmm. in enabling neutral horizontal co-opetition to drive innovation. If you look at Intel's history and the role that we've played with partners like Red Hat around you know, solidifying the work that the community was doing in Linux, the work mm -hmm. that we have done in expanding software-defined everything, it, you know, the infrastructure, et cetera, the work that we have done provides a neutral open platform for innovation. And that's absolutely critical because the challenges that we face today are ripe for innovation, as I just outlined. However, that innovation needs to be built on open foundations. Mm -hmm. It's only if we're working together to build off of one another and build on the brilliance of the engineers that have come before us that we can meet the challenges of tomorrow. You know, when you look at the challenges that we face as a planet, be it challenges with regard to climate change, be it dealing with the pandemic. It's only in the context of open competitive ecosystems that we have been effective in meeting those challenges and innovating and leading. And so we have a deep held passion for the role that this plays in terms of our success and future. Now I know that Red Hat and Intel, you have a a strategic partnership. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the role of that partnership and how that fits in the data context? Yes, absolutely. So Red Hat has been a tremendous partner to Intel for decades. Mm -hmm. We have partnered with Red Hat all the way back to the early days of Linux in terms of solidifying the platform for commercial release and production. Red Hat has been an instrumental partner to us. And I think that the, the value with our Red Hat collaboration is that we are co-travelers in that open innovation frontier. And it's through that partnership. It is through their feedback in terms of our development and our feedback to them with regard to exposing unique capabilities that drive increased performance, increased security, et cetera, that that we both are successful and thrive. I think Red Hat deserves a tremendous amount of credit also for their agency in the ecosystem. They work not only with regard to value creation on behalf of their customers, but they work diligently to uphold the values that we also hold dear with regard to openness and the value of open collaboration in the ecosystem. And so they are, they are fellow travelers with regard to kind of the spirit of what we stand for, but they are also co-travelers in the value creation on behalf of the customers worldwide. Now, Melissa, you're the general manager of the team that works from strategy to execution. So you must be very close to all the innovation that's happening at Intel. I mean, 
my God, it's a huge organization. More than 100,000 people work at Intel. So in your view, how can a big tech company like that stay innovative? What are you and your teams doing to make sure that there's enough innovation going on in your organization? It's a great question. And particularly in large corporations, I think this is something that we can struggle with, with regard to the status quo and meeting our commitments, et cetera. One of the things that I have found to be true is that people, our engineers are just want permission to innovate. They have great ideas and they are actually closest to the code. They are closest to what is happening in the communities, particularly in the context of open source. They're the ones that are engaging in the community conversations, talking about what are better ways to solve this problem? Where is architecture headed? Where do we need to innovate? What won't work the way it worked in the past and we need to do it differently? Empowering your engineers at the front line to be your innovation catalyst, to be that innovation engine, to listen to them, to hear them, um, and have a culture that's very flat and neutral, that empowers people to think critically about their world, think Mm -hmm. critically about what they're sensing, and think critically about the opportunity that is ahead of us, I think is, is essential. And, you know, at Intel, we have parts of our business that are tailored towards innovation, like Intel Labs, for example. That being said, and those folks, you know, are, are literally on the leading frontier of quantum, neuromorphic, et cetera. But each one of our employees has an opportunity to innovate. They are the experts in their specific domain. It might be a very, very specific domain, but they are the expert. And so being able to catalyze them in ways that are meaningful, mm-hmm. I think is one of the most profound ways to stimulate innovation. The challenge becomes scale, right? The challenge because when becomes when you empower all of your folks yeah. to innovate, you know, how do you scale that and how do you meaningfully support them? And so I think there's there's a lot of tension in in that scaling structure. And there are folks who are doing it really well with regard to, you know, patent parties and like, you know, there's all kinds of things that you can do to really harness that innovative spirit. Mm-hmm. And, and listen and empower your people. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit more about yourself. I mean, you're, uh, you're already quite some time at Intel, so, uh, and, and you've led many different teams, I can imagine. So let's talk a little bit about your leadership style. How, how, how do you think people will talk about your leadership style when you're not around? Wow. Um, that's a great question. I think... My guess is what they would say is that I am extremely passionate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I have a lot of energy. I like to solve problems, but more fundamentally, I care about people. Mm-hmm. I care deeply about people. And I think that's part of what has enabled my success is a notion of a deep integration of empathy and care and heart within the context of the way that I lead. And mm-hmm. it, it is hard because loving people is sticky, but <laughs> in the same regard, um, it, you know, really trusting people, really knowing people and trying to seek what is best for not only the business, but also for them yeah. engenders a tremendous amount of trust, a tremendous amount of um, support 
and willingness to lean in through the, all of the changes that are beholden in the context of a technology company. Melissa, do you have a personal mantra? Do you have like a saying that helps you in difficult times when you have to make difficult decisions or so? What's, what's, the, what's your personal mantra? I have a lot of personal mantras. Um, I, I pick from a grab bag depending upon the situation. But one that comes to mind when you ask the question is something my dad said to me actually pretty early on in my life. I was maybe eight or so. And we were having a dinner party um, back when those things happened. <laughs> and um, I was intimidated by some of the people that he had invited to this dinner party as a little eight-year-old girl. And um, he said, Melissa, people put their pants on one leg at a time, no matter who they are. And that notion of everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time, what it did for me is it humanized people. No matter what your title is, no matter who you are, you have hopes, you have fears, you have wishes, you have dreams. And enabling that human element of every individual to be put forward first, for me as a woman in tech, it lowered my fear and intimidation. It, it brought that down and helps me keep it in check that we all put our pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> it's, you know, th this is a human sitting across the table from you too. And we are all trying to seek, you know, the, an optimal outcome for, in most cases, for everybody. And so um, being able to humanize what can be intimidating became uh, very normalizing for me. So Melissa, that is what you learned from your father, but I know that you have three children, all three uh, teenagers. What, what is that you want to pass on to your children? What are the core values that you live by and that you hand out to, uh, to your children? I expect that my children will work to make this planet a better place. Mm -hmm. And I impart that upon them, both in the context of morality, but also in the context of their innovation. Mm -hmm. And so all the way since they were little people, we talked about them being young engineers and the role that problem solving plays in driving innovation and having an engineering mindset, the iteration, the failure, the try again. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I hope for them is they may not become engineers and that's totally fine, <laughs> but that willingness to take risks, to innovate, to fail, to try again, to learn is yep. part of what I hope each of them will have in building resiliency for their future. Lisa, are there persons uh, in your life that you look up to? Do you, were there important people in your life, mentors that coached you, that mentored you, that and, and, and what did you learn from them? Could you maybe give an example? Sure. When I was first a manager, mm -hmm. I had some behaviors that had worked for me very well as what we call an independent con or an independent contributor, mm -hmm. but were not serving me well as mm -hmm. a manager. 
In fact, many of the behaviors that made me very good as an IC were exactly the wrong behaviors to be a really good manager. And I had the pleasure of working with a coach who gave me a metaphor of a butterfly. And that when a butterfly migrates from being a caterpillar to a butterfly, you, a chrysalis is formed. And that chrysalis becomes hard and rigid. And so you, there are behaviors that we have that become pretty hard and rigid. And in order for that next growth phase to be achieved, things have to break. You have to break the structures, break the chrysalis that is formed around you and try new things, spread your wings, try to fly. It's sticky emerging from the chrysalis. It's not, it's not a lot of fun, um, but breaking those old behaviors seeking new behaviors, learning new competencies and skills is part of what all of us do throughout our lives. And recognizing when you have behaviors that are becoming rigid, that are constraining your growth, and how you can then enable growth and transformation out of that situation mm -hmm. is a metaphor that was shared with me and has served me well. Melissa, I would like to thank you so much for your time and for being with us here in this uh, in this interview today. It was really a pleasure and uh, I look forward to uh, meeting you in person uh, very soon. I look forward to that as well. Thank you so much. Thank you.